Hello and welcome to the second episode of Across the Isle. I'm Philip Teal and I'm here with my friend Carla Donnelly. How are you, Carla? Hi, Philip. I'm good. How are you? It's great to be back here in Across the Isle territory to talk about theatre in Melbourne. Last month we were in full-blown festival mode. This month we've been festival-free. And so we've decided to go with an approach where you choose a show and we see it, I choose a show and we see that, and then we discuss the two shows. So that's the system that hopefully we'll be following in the next few episodes. It'll be really interesting to see how you feel about the one that I chose and vice versa. Your pick was Malthouse Theatre's production of I Am a Miracle, and we'll discuss that first. Um, That's written by Declan Green and directed by Matthew Lutton. Uh, The tagline for that is Determined to Change the Course of History. I went for Cage's production of Picnic at 45 Downstairs on Flinders Lane. This was conceived, choreographed and performed by Jared Van Dyke and written by Marie Hardy. Its tagline was part nightmare, part time capsule, (laughs) part gift. Mm. Can't wait to talk about that with you. So we've got different companies, different venues. We've even kind of got very different performance styles. So I can't wait to lift the embargo our careful (laughs) rule not to speak about these productions um, and find out what you thought of these two shows. In particular, I'd love to find out if we can find any connections or intersections between the productions. Oh, yes, I've Um, already thought about that. Great. I'm an English teacher. I love a theme. I love a thread, some kind of connection. Mm. Um, So let's get right into it. Let's start with these shows. So we'll talk first about one of the productions and then break for intermission. Um, And it will be great to hear what you've been up to at intermission Mm. since our inaugural episode last month. So take it away, Carla. Tell us about I Am a Miracle. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I think what we're going to have a lot of in this podcast is not knowing what people's names are. (laughs) So I think it's Matthew Luton. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't even know how to qualify these things. So we'll just bumble along and find out when we find out or we'll get accosted in... Uh, foyers, other places. I think it's Luton. Luton is all right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so um, why I chose this play, I guess, is I really love Declan Green's work. I love his work as a part of Sisters Grimm, but also his work as a playwright. I think he is the most talented playwright coming up through the ranks in Australia. He's absolutely extraordinary. And he's been a part of Sisters Grimm for... I think it's like eight or ten years. The guy, uh, he and Ash Flanders have been doing it together. And they're really sort of anarchistic, uh, crazy queer theatre company that has a lot to say and it's always been excellent productions. But seeing his work that he does on his own has been absolutely fascinating to watch. So this is his new production called I Am A Miracle and the program notes give us a little background saying after 18 years on death row, Marvin Lee Wilson was executed by lethal injection, but after a 2002 Supreme Court ruling, his subnormal IQ should have disqualified him from the death sentence. Strapped to a gurney, his final statement was a plea for recognition, I am a miracle. And this seems to be a theme in Declan's work. He usually, he sort of has this this thing that he takes a leap off into to examine what society has to say about this. Because that story was very much a starting point. It wasn't at all... Part of the story. Um, ...a jail narrative mm. or an execution drama. It wasn't a death row cinema-type theatre production at all. Mm. Yeah, it was a three-part, three-parter on essentially colonialism and... And this is where I think the thread that will tie the two of them together is memory, mm. memory and amnesia or um, chosen memories. The first act I found really 
it's really fascinating because after doing the show last month and thinking about audiences and thinking about the kind of rowdiness of the audiences at Neon, it was interesting to go to a show where everyone has chosen to be there. It's not sort of, maybe they're subscribers and they've just sort of come along or whatever, but there was definitely a lot of purposeful chosen theatre moment people that came to that show. And there'd been buzz around this show in oh, Melbourne. Oh, really? Yeah. Absolutely. I heard people really um, talking about the show with great excitement ah. and struggling to write reviews of it well because they'd been so impacted by the performance. Ah. So I certainly came to the performance with a high level of expectation and there was a real kind of buzz in the Merlin Theatre, I felt. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it was interesting. Like Declan, ha- like uh, Matthew Luden has d- directed another one of Declan's plays before. Uh, the name just escapes me at the moment because I get nervous when I start doing <laughs> this show. But uh, you know, they they seem to be a very good match together. And I found the crowd control like as soon as we sat down, and as soon as it began, everyone was like engaged mm. and silent. Like within thirty seconds, everyone was settled. In comparison to um, some of the shows that we saw, saw last time at Neon, where everyone was quite rowdy and not settled and not sort of getting into the material in, a, in what I felt to be a suitable way. So I sort of took your points on these things were built in design much more seriously when I sort of saw the crowd control with this. But uh, the story essentially goes along in, in three different parts. One part is a young Dutch boy played by Melita Jurizic. Jurizic. Which is already interesting because you say young Dutch boy and she is an older woman yeah. uh, from Australia. That that aspect of the performance I found really riveting. Her ability to step into that quite distinct voice, despite her body and her gender not immediately performing those things, really riveting. Um, and it went along with some writing that was quite poetic and quite avant-garde. Words were repeated. Mm. There were a lot of exclamations. The memory kind of came to the person um, as if she was actually experiencing the thing one more time, kind of embodying the experience of this young Dutch person. And in fact, she would shift voices mm. um, and say words from competing perspectives and have discussions with her self in her own body. It was actually quite mysterious because there were other actors on the stage. Um, but this virtuosic performance really um, opened the first act and kept us um, in monologue mode from the beginning. I was so impressed by the writing by Declan Green. Words like explosion and silence, silence <laughs> um, would be said by this actor um, and in and of themselves would completely set the scene and really tell that story um, of injustice and mm. colonial oppression mm. um, in a really um, visceral way. Mm. I-, I found her absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely. Uh, it was stunning. Yeah. Mm. And uh, the the second half, obviously, was also about, um, you know, a, a mixed-race couple, potentially an Aboriginal man and a white woman, also played by Melita Jurizic, and Bert Labonte was the Aboriginal man or Indigenous man. Uh, and that sort of thread about... Uh, colonialism as well in terms of mental illness so applying colonialism in in a mental illness way so blaming this person and saying this person that their memories and their amnesia is and their mental problems are theirs not a part of the system that they're being imposed on so it became a metaphor mental illness is a metaphor for the experience of having been colonized and having had mm. things taken from you mm. i mean it was it was riveting in this section of the play because we are all so scared of losing our memory. Mm. Um, and this relatively young actor, um, probably only in his middle age, talking about his job, talking about his work, in front of our eyes experienced what it must be like 
to have people turn on you with confusion mm. as you forget even the most basic ways to survive. Or being told that you're being forgotten it. I think that was the most poignant part of that second act was it was the complete erasure of his identity and his agency. So it was kind of like unreliable narration or um, colonialism, you mm. know? So it was it was skating that edge of like what is, what is true. Um, so yeah, taking it in those two acts was really good. And then there was this kind of like third act happening at the same time, which was this kind of anti-place, I think, with the opera singer uh, Hannah Crisp, which was strange and ethereal and I didn't really know what to do with that. What about you, Philip? Intriguing. And the the end of the play becomes quite mystical. There's this going back in time, this deliberate wish fulfillment of going way back to the very start of the created world yeah. um, to somehow transcend injustice, trying to reimagine what the world needed to be like from the very beginning in order to avoid that unfair execution, which was the starting point of the whole play. So that level of ambition was in enjoyable um and to have opera australia backing the show somehow yes. collaborating as part yeah, of it lovely. um to lift it to those kind of melodramatic heights in which they would simply name elements of the earth or nations in which colonial injustice mm. had happened including australia um it got adam and eve mm. right mm. there was this sense that we were imagining our way back to the very start of time yeah to to wish a world without injustice yeah. into being, almost as a kind of ritual practice. And, you know, the, the angels' singing voice was amplified. Yes. The bright lights were shining in our eyes. It was successfully transcendent yeah. um, and really memorable. Um, I felt quite impacted by that climax of the show. Mm. Um, and music and sound actually played a riveting role throughout the production. I'd love to think about sound, actually. It seems that theatre shows more and more are turning up the volume, um, having really present soundtracks, um, almost deafening at times yeah. as a way of affecting audiences. And if it's done well, it can be so powerful. Um, if it's done badly, it feels like it's really interrupting live performance, the tradition of hearing a voice and responding to a voice can sometimes feel cut across, especially by pre-recorded sound. Yeah. Lots of the sound in this production was pre-recorded, but to have that voice of the live singer yeah. threaded that music uh, soundscape together in an effective way, I felt. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really love the deconstruction of it, you know, for lack of a less wanky term. Um I have to say, like, all of that being said, I thought it was very beautiful. And there, there's this moment between the first scene and the, the first act and the second act where the curtain, the, the background curtain actually comes uh, horizontally towards the audience and it just completely engulfs the stage and leaves nothing, nothing left on the stage. Dragging chairs as it goes. And it was like this cloud of amnesia that just moved straight through the show and cut through everything from this um, probably, what, 17th, 16th century, 17th century clo literal colonialism tale of a soldier to this modern-day tale of a mentally affected Indigenous person. It was staged really well. The first act was very long and the second act was quite short, so I didn't feel it paced properly for me, like from my expectations of what a show should be. But I have to say, and this really ruined what something what could have been a completely transcendent experience, was the grinding sound of that circular stage. Right. 
Did you hear it? Well, I, I saw it. I didn't experience that so much as a sound, but I was thinking about that spinning stage as you described the dragging curtain, uh, because those elements of stagecraft, the curtain yeah. and the possible movement of a stage, have been used in other productions I've seen in a way that's a little bit elegant or musical theatre-like. Yes. Let's drop the curtain. Let's spin the stage mm. to reveal another angle on the same question. Here, both of those traditional elements of stagecraft were put into a kind of anarchic mode. Yeah. I mean, I, not having heard um, or noticed the cranking sound, I certainly experienced that whirling dervish scene uh, when there were people kind of with relationships breaking down all over the place, spinning in yeah. front of our eyes with a refrigerator kind of visible yes. every second cycle. Yeah. Um, and, and I was stuck on the story of the refrigerator, you know, whether the ice cream was going to be accessed um, by the man, whether the blender was going to explode one more time. I mean, it seemed so domestic, so trivial, but then elevated again by this surprising use of what's usually a bit crafty, you know, let's, spin the stage was suddenly this is going full tilt um you don't know how to get off this thing yeah just like the curtain which usually just politely ends a play here was actually wrecking the set yeah dragging chairs along getting in people's faces <laughs> yeah. as people had to kind of shuffle further and further towards the audience in order to escape it it became a monster yeah so i loved that um in this space of the merlin theater where i've seen a lot of productions that seem a bit confused by how spacious the area is, yeah. the big dark edges that you get in that room. Here, that all made sense because it was captured by the curtain or, you know, um, spilt on by the spinning stage with, mm. you know, liquids and ice creams all over it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it really distracted. It distracted the second act for me. I tried to let it go, but then, of course, it's one of those things where if you notice something, you're like, don't notice it, don't notice it, don't notice it. <laughs> it becomes more amplified as time goes by. Yeah, without the spinning stage, I think this could have just – it knocked my socks off anyway. I went in there with high expectations because I know what these people can do in terms of their work. And I agree with you with the stage, like – that stage is enormous. Like the space is absolutely enormous. And I think it's the, it has to be the biggest stage in Melbourne. And Matthew Lytton really commands it. It's a real gift. And I don't know if you know, but he's actually now the, the artistic director of the Malt House. He's taken over for Marion Potts. So, right, right. And that was sort of all of a sudden she didn't kind of, she got a, a job and left, you know, it wasn't sort of the end of the tenure kind of thing. And so I'm sure he was already booked in to do this play already, but it'll be really interesting to see where he goes creatively with the program. I, I was deeply affected by this. I, I was deeply affected in terms of the line that it drew around amnesia and memory and choosing to forget mm. and choosing to erase people's memories or people's agency and that being a form of amnesia of its own, mm. you know. And in terms of the politics Viewing it as a white Australian person in this post-colonial setting, I felt that I was directly engaged by the political questions, that there was an accusatory tone which was effective and appropriate to the production, and it was done in a way that was not trite. Um, but there was also hope. There was also pushing right back at the end and saying, this is on you. Yeah, with the possibility yes. of redemption, the yeah. possibility of renegotiation, yes. even if it requires Acknowledgement. a massive, massive fantasy time travel experience. <laughs> yes. Yeah. How wonderful that theatre is being produced in Melbourne that is so affecting and provocative. Yes. 
it was a real pleasure to witness that. And I'm thrilled, actually, to hear about the appointment of this person as the Malthouse director, um, because I reckon it's one of the edgier things that I've seen um, at that company. And if that's the direction in which the company is being moved, then its relationship to other theatre companies in Melbourne is going to continue being pushed towards the radical end of things, which is a function that I think historically... Uh, Playbox and now the Malthouse has played in relation to other Melbourne theatre companies. So that's really exciting. Sure. All right. It's intermission. Ooh. Carla, can you get me a couple of bubblies, please? Just just uh, two or two few. Or what, one is, for me. what is your standard order <laughs> at the theatre? What do you get? Oh, just a red wine, darling. I'm always on the bubbles just because they pre pour. Oh, yes. I find it tantalising. Yes. It depends where I go, actually. Like, uh, here's a hot tip. Don't ever drink the, malt, the wine at the malt house. We did discover yeah. that, didn't we? Avoid the red. Oh, no, any wine at the malt house. Right. Sorry, malt house. Choose better wine. Good beer. But re- Good beer. Good very beer. good beer. Good beer. But wine everywhere else. What have you been up to, Carla? Apart from these two shows we're discussing today, what else have you been doing in the little while since I last met you? Well, you said it's not festival month. It's not... Theatre Festival Month. You and I have been going to a lot of other festival things. Melbourne Writers Festival. Uh, the what is it? Melbourne Master, Melbourne Winter Masters. Is that what it's called? Winter uh, Winter Masterpieces at yeah. the National Gallery. So I did a lot of the David Bowie films this month. How's that? Yeah, yeah. Look, you know, uh, I just—it's so awful. Like you just watch it and you're like, oh, it's you know, it's the Big Book of British Smiles. Like you can't take your eyes away from it. It's Beautiful. so horrendous. But that's not what I want to talk about. Don't try and sneak. It in there. I want to do two, but I'll do one and then we can we can exchange like the uh, sounds good, like the sharing people cool. that we are. So the first thing I want to talk about, I've had a huge month actually, and I, it was hard for me to whittle down the two things that I really wanted to talk to. But one of the most hilarious and amazing moments I had this month was seeing Magic Mike XXL oh! at the drive-in. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'd never been to the drive-in before in my life. Which drive-in is this? Coburg. Coburg. Yeah, Coburg. Right. So me and my friend went out there on a Wednesday night. It was freezing. Hardly anyone was there. It was like being on the set of a, a horror film. And uh, we've got like all of our lovely snacks in the car. It was just wonderful. And then right just before the movie was about to begin, this like RAV4 with pea pl- red pea plates on them just hoons up, backs in, Perfect. kicks open the door. <laughs> kicks open the door. <laughs> Kicks open the door and there's these four blonde teenage girls in their sleeping bags in the back come to settle on down and watch some Magic Mike XXL. Who needs a music festival? Ah, it was sublime. And then the movie started and, you know, it's amazing. There's nothing much more that can be said about what can be said about it. Everyone's been gasping about it this month. But, uh... The thing about the drive-in was is that Josh and I could just sit there and talk the entire time. Okay. Like, talk incessantly. And it was amazing. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. What about you? Well, you I was at the one. movies. I was at the movies. I went to some Melbourne International Film Festival. Oh, yes. Talk to me about the festival. Well, like everyone who talks about their preferred uh, section of MIF, I love docos. Seems a cliche um, at the Melbourne International Film Festival. But I was disappointed this year by the quality of some of them. Oh. The, the the quality of um, production values in documentaries varies wildly. Sure. So a film about Peggy Guggenheim you'd expect to be gorgeous, to be a wonderful walk through the 20th century full of fabulous encounters with artists, lovers, paintings, etc. Um, and it was that, but it wasn't that enough. There was mm. stock footage included, there were little kind of build-ups to climaxes that were actually not that dramatic. Mm. It was clearly sponsored by the museum. 
um, in Venice, which shows her work now. I don't know. That's I just found that mediocre. Um, and it was true as well for a couple of other documentaries, including Prophet's Prey, uh, which is about this terrifying cult in America. You would think that the material was bang on the money. How could you possibly go wrong with a cult expose? <laughs> but they managed to be sort of one-sided and heavy-handed oh. and... Uh, righteous, ironically, of course, yes. about it. Yeah. Um, and I went to the ballet, Carla. Sure. I was too scared to tell you um, because I know that the plan always with Australian ballet is for us to go along together. But it was last minute. There was one ticket. Did you go last night? 2021. The matinee yesterday. I can't believe it. I'm gutted. I anticipated this, so thought I'd just bring it to you. <laughs> so I can't hurt you <laughs> whilst air. there's... There's people in the room. I feel protected by this microphone. (laughs) 2021 by Australian Ballet is exceptional. And it's a bit parochial of me, but I love seeing Australian Ballet shows because the school is here. The Australian Ballet Mm. School is our thing. Opera Australia's home is Sydney. Sydney, Australian Ballet's home is Melbourne. And they are doing such wonderful, modern, contemporary, energetic work. The first act was choreographed by Balanchine. Um, and had this kind of leap, which is just absolutely gravity-defying, repeated to Stravinsky music throughout it. So strong, right? So confident. And it was the kind of dance work that you would pay a lot of money to see, right? And (laughs) after seeing the release of Opera Australia's season for next year, in which kind of a rarely performed Verdi opera is meant to be exciting, to see actual modern work confidently presented by Australian Ballet just made me thrilled. I was hooting, I was standing. It was just um, exceptional. So if you hear this before 2021 has um, pulled the plug, yeah, yeah, get along and just support this company. It's just a wonderful group of strong, energetic and occasionally quite funny dancers. Well... First of all, you will be taking me again this week. I'm so glad to hear that you enjoyed it so much because you'll enjoy it even more cool. the second time around. Good. We're friends again. Yes. Uh, that's two things. I really want to get in the thing that I want to talk about, but I want to talk about what you just said. You're imposing this arbitrary limit. Say no, more. I know. It's okay. Uh, so you said, you know, Opera Australia isn't doing sort of a, a nouveau work or whatever. What about the rabbits that's coming up for Melbourne International Arts Festival? Okay. I mean, it looks horrendous to me but what do you think okay no good point good point i mean it's just that time of the year isn't it when we get in the mail or online the season announcements for next year and there's that moment when you sort of hope against hope is this my year yeah yeah no is it time yeah um australian chamber orchestra usually an impressive experimental exploratory group and still doing a nice mix of music has centered next year's season around beethoven Uh, beethoven i know we have the haydn perspective in Melbourne International. I know, like... The Melbourne Festival and the String Quartet series? I know, I know. Move on. I know, I know. Move on. All right, let me talk about the thing that I really want to talk about. And it's being talked about everywhere, but I really want to hear your perspective on it, and then I can give my perspective. Ashley Madison Hack. (laughs) So we have to preface all of this in saying that hacking is wrong, releasing private information is terrible. Have you just been reading everything about it? Oh, yes, I'm... Absolutely obsessed. So now we have the data. Let's analyze it. Okay. Talk to me, Philip. Well, um, <laughs> how, firstly, how um, sorted? Uh, yes. I don't know. Is it really? Like, are people really surprised? Do I, should we be serious about it? Or can we laugh? I know I want to laugh. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Because it's hilarious. Uh, the Gizmodo article that came out yesterday, I forwarded it to you because I was hoping that you'd read it whilst I sprung this on you. 
so the Gizmodo data analysis sort of came down that there was 5.5 million users identified as female, so 30, out of 37 million users, right. 5.5. But they've really only been able to isolate, you know, maybe 100,000, a couple hundred thousand users that were actually active. The majority of the the accounts, the female accounts were fake oh. or produced by Ashley Madison or maybe that they were logged on, created but never used. So we've got a whole bunch of lonely dudes out there looking for affairs sure. and uh, not getting any action even more. Which means that the kind of imagined conversation between husband and wife might not be happening as much as we think. Instead, it might instead be a bit of a blush and a chat between friends. No, because isn't the whole point of it is like, I, I've searched the database and I've found you on it. So, you know, whether you've done it or not, the fact is that you're looking for sex outside of your marriage. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's coming back to kind of bite anyone stupid enough to use a website that's so confrontingly kind of positions sexual activity as naughty. Yes. You know, have an affair. I know. It seems old school to me. It's, it's just bizarre to me. Like, there's so... Are they Luddites? Are they technophobes? Like, what is this? Like, why aren't they on four billion other different apps? Maybe they are. Maybe they're on 20 apps and this was just another thing that they were on. But so many of them were paid users. I just find it really fascinating. There's the bell. <laughs> All right, Philip, let's talk about Picnic. Picnic, the show staged at 45 Downstairs on Flinders Lane, conceived and performed by Gerard Van Dyke and written by Marique Hardy, was a funny old night, mm. partly because we rocked up among, it seemed like hundreds, probably 20 or so, <laughs> young girls on a school excursion. I know. With their anxious teachers crowding them into the theatre for their special night. Now, I'd been hanging out outside 45 downstairs, just enjoying that end of Flinders Lane. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely. gorgeous part of Melbourne. There was an art opening. There were bustling crowds entering Cumulus Inc. for their dinner. And these girls in skinny jeans were being dropped off by their silver SUVs. Oh. Um, and I had no idea that we'd end up sitting among them at this theatre show. It was delightful. And as we entered, um, there was a sense among the whole audience that this somehow changed things, that everyone in the audience would be kind of looking through a double lens at this show. <laughs> um, this show was performed by one man, and he really was responsible for the highs, the lows, the missteps, the energy throughout. That gave the performance a real riskiness, backed up by the fact that it was a tiny room. I mean, compared to the Merlin Theatre, this was basically like a lounge room performance, you mm. know, going over to somebody's floorboarded space um, <laughs> and having them do a little dance, essentially. A dance interspersed with Facebook update-like anecdotes about a person's life. Oh, that's interesting. So we're on a picnic and we're hearing little stories. He's having lunch by himself but he's using his phone. He needs to share, like we all need to share. Um, and so the statements made in the monologues by Marie Hardy seemed deliberately tawdry, like, I'm going to call a moratorium on group dining. You know, the kind of thing that, that you'd accidentally post to Facebook because you felt it passionately for a second and then it was just stuck there being liked by your auntie. Yeah, <laughs> that was the vibe that I was getting. Um, the unevenness of it, though, this kind of flitting between dancing and talking, mm. the kind of 
food being placed under people's seats in the audience. It made me feel immediately like I was at some kind of variety show. <laughs> yes. But there was only one performer doing all of the roles. I know. Was it puppeteering? Was it dancing? Was it some kind of magic trick? Um, I quickly relaxed into a real um, picnic-style enjoyment myself. One interesting feature of the stage was that, at times, using an iPhone, Van Dyke was recording himself talking as if he was making a vlog-style sure. diary, and the face would appear on a screen, kind of reflected on the floorboards in the back corner of the room, and all eyes were drawn to the screen as another comment, seemingly, yes, on social media no culture. was watching the performer. Exactly. Yeah. We just need to sort of get screen time with whatever we're experiencing, even if it's happening right before our eyes. Now, I'm... Uh, not going to suggest that this show was major or that it was consistently outstanding, but it did include one of the funniest things that I have seen in a very long time. <laughs> what was that? The picnic rug on which this dancer man was having his little lonely picnic was dismantled by Van Dyke, unthreaded in a kind of hyperkinetic dance, oh. reminiscent of that game that primary school children play where they make the Eiffel Tower with wool between their two yes. hands. But his whole body was surrounded by more and more threads as he kind of leapt and huffed and span, semisalted. Uh, the school children in the front row were utterly confused. They just had to look at each other to kind of check for the appropriate response. Oh my God, I loved that. It was adorable. It was yeah. gorgeous. Another little feature that I enjoyed was that, you know, as a kind of vote for authenticity, we were invited to write the ideal love letter, the letter that oh, we'd yes. like to receive on a real piece of paper. And then we got one as we left. I know. It was charming and minor and went for 45 minutes and I had a great time. Minor's a nice word. Ooh, well, when I saw that you'd picked this, uh, this was the reason why I'd love, I wanted you to come along with this journey because I have such prejudices of for so many things in Melbourne arts. So Cage, the company that produces this, uh, produced one of the worst things I've ever seen in my whole life and I would never go back. So I was like, oh, okay, this is good. I'm going to uh, expand my mind. And I went and I know Marique as well, which I wasn't sure if you knew that either. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to have to go and do this too. And Ron, our producer, produces a show with Marique as well. So it was all kind of strung together and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to this show. And then there's these 12-year-old girls that look like they're out of picnic from Hanging Rock. <laughs> You know, sitting in the whole front row in front of us anxiously. I mean, it was, and it was hybrid dance uh, theater piece, all kind of anxiously looking at each other, going, What do we look at? What are we reacting to? What's happening? Does anyone get it? You know, they're just like little meerkats in front of us trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, all of this sort of came to the point of me sort of feeling like the first half of the show was a bit like I was at a a taping of Play School for Adults. There was a Play Schoolish ABC quality. Yes, yes. And 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 the grand finale is yeah. a person whimsically flying a kite. But it, it was actually a lo- by the second half, I was like, this is actually very dark. Um, and also knowing Marique with the writing of the letter things, I'm like, oh, you know, it's Marique's obsession with the written word. And I thought, oh god, is she going to collect them all? Is this all for her? <laughs> it's like porn for her. But then we all got one. I love dancers. And that was the other thing. I was like, oh, Philip, he's taking me to a hybrid performance. Dance theatre. <laughs> You're so prejudiced. I'm such, a, I'm such a purist. I'm like, how could you? But uh, by the end of it, I actually, I actually really enjoyed it because I really thought it was a parable about a person's descent into madness from loneliness. 
And, uh, you know, it's that sort of like really sad final scene where he literally looks like a clown and he's flying the kite made out of a chip bag and he's just sort of like pretty much lost his marbles. Uh, it was, it was very dark and I did enjoy it, enjoy it actually. And it was 45 minutes, which is great. You know how mm. I don't like things that are too long. And I will say the actor, how beautiful, like dancers' bodies, I can't get over it. I can't watch it, get over watching how their bodies move. Absolutely. And that he looked like the love child of David Cronenberg and Viggo Mortensen as well. Good. Helped. Good. Yeah. Um, the teachers were sitting right behind us and as soon as the show finished, they said, um, oh, look, I was hoping for something a bit more. What? what does that even mean? I wondered if the ah. class might have been dance students because if oh. you brought a group of kids into the city to see a dance show, you would go away disappointed because, you know, a bit of a semisultan and kind of pigeon imitation was about as far as the dance component of the show really went, which I thought was fine, but that might have been the context for the I want a bit more. Although I say it straight after your comment on the body because there was this sense of possibility and potential in his strength and athleticism. Yeah. That was not exactly um, used to the fullest capacity. It wasn't an um, a kind of virtuosic athletic show mm. and had that whimsy element throughout it. I noticed at many points you were distracted in the earlier production by the cranking stage sounds as it spun. I thought that the soundtrack to this production was just a little bit cheap and twee and turned up too loud. I actually really enjoyed it. Oh, I'm glad you did. I loved the... uh, That was actually the saving grace for me. That was the thing that kind of pulled it together for me. So even at the end of the show, when we've got full volume soundtrack on somebody kite flying, you didn't find that too much of a Uh, disjuncture? The the volume was too loud, but I actually really enjoyed the composition. it, It sort of added this technological element that they were trying to... Um, sort of met- be meta- metaphorical about. Right. Um, Alistair McIndoe, I think, is the, the composer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, look, I wanted to hate it, but I didn't. I sat down and as soon as, look, interactive theatre, fourth wall, people talking to the audience, audience and wanting us to do things. I had some potato I salad under my chair. down. I shut down. <laughs> arms crossed. Ooh. It's over. Don't ask me. And, you know, that's how good this performer is because he won me over in the end. Delightful. Uh, so that is Cage's picnic. Life's a picnic. That was the other thing that I kept thinking about the whole time. Life's a picnic. It was this whole riffing on, you know, isn't life supposed to be a picnic? Mm. Picnic for one, where you slowly descend into madness from loneliness. How cute. Nice one, Marik. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's Coming it. soon. That's it for our productions. And so now we'll have a think about September. More shows, more things, more sights, more sounds. The Fringe Festival surely will have its program released soon, if not already. Is it out? Yeah, it's out. We need to get into that. Yeah. What are your strategies for choosing shows at the Fringe? I need some guidance. Uh, Fringe, I actually just end up, I have to be pretty strict because I could go to 7,000 things. So I usually just only go to the shows that my friends do, which end up being about 15. (laughs) So... It is lovely that the Fringe Festival sets the bar really low for inclusion, and so everyone's got a neighbour or a friend in something, or and you sort of spend most it's of the festival going. It's not a low yeah, bar. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I mean, I have to admit that most of the time during Fringe, I'm like, I could do this. Well, it's a pleasure. Well, let's see what happens when you put your show in Fringe <laughs> Festival next year. I'll come. Live recording. Let's do it. Let's go there. 
What's coming up for you? That's not, I don't actually have anything on the books. I was too consumed with booking arts festival to kind of get my shit together for September. So but the, I'm sure it'll yeah. fill up really soon. Yeah, October will be the Melbourne International yeah. Arts Festival. Fringe well, is also kind of fly by night as well. So you just sort of go along to the shows that are getting a lot of buzz. And, can't wait. Yeah. Well, we'll see what we get up to and get back to everyone during our third episode. Because that's it for our second show. Thanks, Philip. It's been really fun. Thanks so much, Carla. And thanks to all of our listeners. You can contact us at us at acrossisle.com. Our website is acrossisle.com and we tweet at acrossisle. Thank you, Ron. Ron is our producer from the Slick and Professional Shack West Productions. For all your audio and video needs, Ron at Shack West is your man. Our beautiful theme music is by Mark Barrage find more of his work at SoundCloud and thank you to all of the artists who put on the shows we've seen this month you make our life more thoughtful, stimulating and fashionable show synopses that we read out on this program are the property of the relevant production companies and reproduced here for the purpose of review thanks again, see you next month to catch our next show, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud or anywhere else where podcasts are found And if you want to be an arts patron, if you would like us to have a little bit of spare cash to actually keep up this hedonistic lifestyle that we keep talking about, please support us at patreon.com. Now, we'll put the link to our Patreon account at our Facebook page, but you can easily find us by going to patreon.com and searching for Across the Aisle. The basic idea is chuck us a few bucks each month and feel better every time you hear our show. Buy us a coffee. It's very Melbourneian. All right. See you next month. Bye. Bye.